1: and dryer coverage just call 1-800-686-3910 that's 1-800-686-3910 again 1-800-686-3910 call now the
0: more the world changes the more we find comfort in things that never change this is rabbi daniel lapin on demand on the blaze radio network
1: welcome everybody Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lapin show here on The Blaze and thank you as always for being part of this podcast. I'm going to do something today that uh, we've never done before on the show. And and that is I'm going to actually play for you as as the podcast a speech I gave this week in Chicago. Um it, it was an important speech i felt for my audience for my podcast audience uh, because it related very directly to the morality of making money the dignity of being in business and specifically the the tools and techniques that have worked so well for jewish people over the centuries in good places and in bad in good times and in bad times. And uh, this was uh, an audience of uh, maybe uh, four or 500 Christians who uh, were interested in hearing on this topic. And I realized afterwards that um, this really was something I wanted to make available to all of you. And so I've done so, and uh, I ask your uh, forbearance because... The quality, the audio quality is not what we're accustomed to. It's not what we always have. But I think think it's workable. I don't think it's going to be – I hope it won't be too much of a strain or too much of a stress and uh, and that you enjoy it. As usual, I I love it when you let me know. So uh, you you must go to the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and go to the Contact Us tab. Shoot me an email and, and just let me know if this worked for you or if it didn't work for you. Uh, if it didn't, I'll never do it again. And if it did on special occasions, I just might do it again. Um, last week, by the way, quick correction. I was speaking about uh, James Frazier's The Golden Bough, and um, <laughs> um, it was actually a correction from the previous week, because I, previous week I said The Golden Bough was written by Richard Burton. So last week... I corrected it, and I said I made a mistake. It was not Richard Burton. It was James Frazier, and it's like a big 12-volume work. And then I said, uh, "It's you know, it's just too much to keep on a bookshelf. So I myself have an expurgated version of it. <laughs> and, um, and one of you wrote in to me, and I really appreciate it. Thank you, David. Uh, one of you wrote in and said, uh, you don't mean uh, expurgated. Expurgated means censored. Uh, what you meant was abridged, and, of course, he's absolutely right. The, the word abridged is not a synonym for the word expurgated. These are two different words, and um, <laughs> uh, and what I meant, of course, was abridged. So with that correction, let's get going, and uh, let me uh, share with you the, the speech that I delivered just a couple of days ago uh, in Chicago. Thank you. A great big thank you to you, Pastor Rob, and your wife, Pastor Linda. Uh, I deeply appreciate your hospitality, and uh, it means an enormous amount to me uh, to have the honor of occupying your microphone and your pulpit. Uh, It's an honor that I do not take lightly, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, I, I hope very much Uh, to make your uh, massive investment in time as worthwhile as I possibly can, in spite of the fact that I'm fourth choice for this evening's program. (laughs) And look, I'm not a proud person, you know, not not more than is reasonable, and, um, and so I'm okay with that. I'm actually okay with that. And I'm even more than okay with it. Look, there's no question about it that if, first choice Donald Trump is available,
0: (laughs) Uh,
1: he would have been highly entertaining. There's no question about it. Uh, Unfortunately, he wasn't. He explained uh, to uh, the the, um, organizers that um, he was otherwise occupied campaigning. So uh, after that, of course, uh, Warren Buffett
0: um,
1: (laughs) of the Berkshire Hathaway Company, whose shares have gone up by... uh, thousand, seven hundred percent, that, I mean, no question about that would have been very interesting indeed. Uh, he turned us down. Um, Bill Gates said, what, Bible believers? I've never met people like that. So he was out. And that left me. And I'm really okay with that. I'm just fine with that, because I want to explain to you that although Donald Trump would have been much more entertaining than me, his value is restricted to only those of you whose fathers died and bequeathed you 1,700 apartment units in New York. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way that any old fool can convert 40 million into 4 billion, uh, it's actually a lot easier to go in the other direction. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and so Donald Trump is no idiot. Um, but unless you fell into that same kind of demographic, he doesn't have a lot to tell you. That's, all, that's how he has worked. He has never worked from lower than 40 million. And so for those of you who are starting off with a nest egg of $40 million, um, Donald Trump probably would have been a better choice. Uh, if your mother happens to have served on the board of IBM and you dropped out of an Ivy League school like Harvard on the eve of the computer revolution and you happen to have an extremely high IQ, then Bill Gates would have been very useful to you. there's probably not a lot of you with mothers on the board of IBM. Warren Buffett, a legend in his own right, so uh, that's it. But me, here's why I'm useful. I am not here to tell you how clever I am and all the things I've done, because neither of those are terribly interesting, exciting, or true. Um,
0: But... (laughs)
1: What I am here to tell you is how literally millions, I wanted to say hundreds of thousands just to sound more modest, but literally millions of Jews throughout, well, history really, have done disproportionately well with money. Jews of every color, of male or female, of tall or short, of every nationality and every ethnic background, in good times and in bad, in hospitable countries as well as in tyrannical regimes, and in in all of these circumstances, Jews have done disproportionately well with money. Ordinary folks, ordinary. It's not because they have extraordinarily high because the truth is that extraordinarily high IQ is an impediment to making money have you ever heard of people say too clever for your own good have you ever had the experience of interacting particularly in a transactional situation with somebody who just who just seems so much smarter than you are and i know when that happens to me i kind of feel that I don't get the full picture that there's an agenda going on there. And it, I, I don't feel good about it. I feel like I'm being manipulated. I'm comfortable interacting with people like us, ordinary people. Because that way there can be transparency and, and you can see what I'm thinking and I can see what you're thinking and we discuss it. But when you're super high intelligent, yeah. you have an impediment. As a matter of fact, uh, some interesting studies have been done. It's a standard bell curve distribution. You know that bell curve looks like this? And over at this end, you've got the super high-intelligent people, the Warren Buffetts and the Bill Gates, who are super high-intelligent. And truly, it's only once in an epoch that people of super high-intelligence make a lot of money. The, the stars lined up for them. Sam Walton, who started Walmart, he was an like, ordinary guy like us, the drove a he he wasn't a a brain. He was just an ordinary average guy. How about at the other end of the, down over here, this is Forrest Gump territory. (laughs) Now, Forrest Gump actually did become a tycoon, but you've got to remember one basic thing, and that is it was a
0: movie.
1: (laughs) People at Forrest Gump's operational level do not become tycoons neither do the folks at this end. It's all the rest of us here in the bulk middle of that bell curve. That's where it's all happening. You know what these folks are all doing? They're serving on the faculties of universities. And if any of you are in the financial services industries and you happen to have any tenured professors as clients, you know how appallingly bad they are with money. They're terrible. And so... That, and you'll also, I think, at least half of you will be enormously relieved to hear that it doesn't require circumcision either. <laughs> because um, if it did, for many of us, poverty would be preferable. So um, we we have to ask ourselves, you know, if, if it's none of these things, it's not it's not super intelligence, and it's not. Uh, there's also, by the way, one of the explanations they give for Jewish success, really dumb one is a racist explanation, and that is that uh, rich Jews managed to buy their way out of uh, various oppressions. Uh, the Cossacks killed all the poor Jews, so the rich Jews came and uh, and, um, and and, and uh, uh, reproduced, and now that's what you have. For that to be true, science would have had to discover a money gene in Jewish sperm. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing. It's absurd. As a matter of fact, it's so clearly not true that it's very common, even in the Jewish community, uh, for people who have made a lot of money to watch it get dissipated by their grandchildren's generation. Very often. Because very often, the qualities that affluence brings can undermine the very capacity that brought about that affluence in the first place. And so part of affluence and part of of what ancient Jewish wisdom teaches is, in addition to making the money, keeping it. How to make sure it doesn't ruin your children. Because I'm sure you've all noticed that in general, children are families where all the children have to join in. They all have to help. They all have to try and make things work. They do much better than the children of the super-rich, who invariably become depraved and decadent and destroyed. So if we're trying to become super-effective at making money, we also need some kind of protection against our children becoming destroyed by our success. So what is... it? what is it if it's if it's none of these things it's very simple it's a set of spiritual strategies tips tools and techniques from the bible that have just become absorbed into the jewish people through the last 2000 years and those same tips and tools and techniques that come from the Bible are able to be translated into completely usable strategies for people of every background. And indeed, they should be. Because one of the things we have to ask ourselves is what was God's plan? Now, I should tell you that um, I come from a place where I have no doubt whatsoever, when uh, years ago when I was a student, I believed what I'm about to tell you. I don't believe it anymore. Now I know it. And that is that the Bible is God's message to mankind. And therefore, if I want to understand what God's plans for us are, then that's the only place to go and look. Do you know what the difference is between a theologian and a God-fearing human being? The God-fearing human being is interested in knowing what God thinks about people. The theologian is interested in finding out what people think about God. I'm not a theologian. I'm really not that interested in what people think about God. But I'm passionately interested in what God thinks about us. And uh, so much so that I've discovered that the most important question to ask, and there are good people on both sides of the question, but if I really want to know what the intrinsic beliefs of a person are, I only have one question, and that is, do you believe that God gave his message to mankind through Moses on Mount Sinai? And it's a yes or no answer. And I discovered something else. You know, when my daughters court, because we don't believe so much in dating, we believe in courting. And uh, when a gentleman comes and and wants to uh, court one of my daughters, I always have a very basic question. It's the same question I end up asking the people I sit next to on airplanes, and that is, so what do you do to help God's other children? People huh? <laughs> are Well, what do you do to help other people, God's other children? Huh? I said, look, I hate to say, what do you do for a living? Because that makes it sound so crass and selfish. Like, you, you only do it for your living? So I don't want to insult you. That's why I said, what do you do for other... P- oh, oh, you mean what's my job? Well, yeah, if you want to put it in those terms. But, uh, yeah, okay. And so I... Very early on, as like, soon as I would meet somebody coming to uh, court, my daughter, I always say, and so what do you do to, uh, to help God's other children? He said, oh, you mean like what's my job? I said, fine, okay. I've discovered that any answer that begins with a word, well, means he's unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> it's simple. It's straightforward. It's never failed me. We kick him to the curb. Why would I want an unemployed person dating my daughter or courting my daughter? That doesn't make sense. Even from a purely economic point of view. I mean, this way I only have to support her. If they get married, I'll support both of them. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> makes no sense. So I discovered that anytime people answer this word, well, and so I've discovered in America people who are Jewish and people who are not. When I say, so do you believe that... Uh, God gave his message to mankind through Moses on Mount Sinai, and they start off saying, well, I, okay, thank you. You've just given me your answer. That's not hard. I know what you're going to say next. Well, it depends what you mean by the inspired. And that's, and you know what? Onwards to the next thing. We got it already. And so uh, it makes a lot of sense to, to ask, what did God plan with money? Is it possible that... In actuality, God was distracted by some trouble spot in the Middle East. And when he next turned around, humanity had created money and he said, Oh, I can't believe it. Look what they've gone and done. <laughs> that doesn't seem likely to me. Doesn't seem likely. Particularly since the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, has more rules, rituals, Restrictions and regulations about money than about anything else. That's more than the sacrifices and more than uh, than than dietary uh, d- d- kosher food dietary rules. More discussion, more rules, more more verses dedicated to the process of making a living, to the process of uh, earning money than anything else. Therefore, it is clear that this was part of God's plan. Somehow or another, this was part of what he intended for human interaction. Now, let me give you an example of, uh, of, of where we're going here. Think about this for a second. Um, in the, in uh, late 16th century, Firearms, as we know them, uh, began to to make their appearance. And uh, finally, a terrific American by the name of Samuel Colt was making very fine revolvers. Colt Python, anyone own one of those? That's a nice nice piece of machinery. So um, what happens is he's making Colts, and uh, we're looking at you know the uh, you know maybe 1760, 1770, 1780, 1790, and here's how he would do it. He would have a big table, and he'd have six p- people around the table, and that way they'd keep each other company as they worked. And each man around the table was making a revolver. So each man would first of all uh, drill out the uh, barrel, and then he would make the uh, the cylinder, and then he'd make the chamber, and then he'd make the hammer, and then he'd make the trigger, and the trigger guard, and then at the end of the day, if he managed it in the day, otherwise it might be after two or three days, he'd put all the pieces together, and he'd sign his name underneath it, because he was the guy who made it, and away we went. And, you, you know, they talk to each other while they're working, and uh, that, that's how they made logs how they made anything. Along comes a man called Adam Smith, Bible-believing Scottish um, gentleman who, uh, uh, who studied economics, as it was in those days. And in 1776, he published a book called An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. And he came up with an observation. He said, you know, this is really interesting. But if we would make all the parts interchangeable, wait, 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 you you lost me. What do you mean interchangeable? He says, well, look, you've got one guy over there making uh, a revolver barrel and a revolver cylinder. And you've got a guy here doing the same thing. Now, if they were to switch cylinders, it wouldn't work because each man makes his cylinder to fit his barrel. And each man makes his chamber to fit his cylinder and his barrel. So there is no interchangeability. Each, each one is slightly different. Said Adam Smith, if we make them all interchangeable, then we can do specialization. Everyone says, whoa, what are you talking about? What's specialization? He says, well, I've got this idea, and we should try it out. If uh, that man on that side of the table just makes barrels, This man just makes cylinders. This guy just does chambers. This guy just does hammers. This guy just does triggers. This guy does trigger guards. And that guy assembles them all together. Each person just keeps making a barrel, drops it in the box. He keeps making a cylinder, drops it in the box. This guy reaches into this box, pulls out a barrel, pulls out a cylinder, pulls out a and they're all interchangeable because all the parts are made to the exact same measurements and specifications. He puts them together, puts it in the finish box, and somebody takes it out and sells it. So Samuel Colt r- reads about all this and he says, fantastic. I've got to try this. He tries it. And instead of his table of men turning out four or five revolvers every week, They were suddenly turning out 50 revolvers every week just through this. Well, each man suddenly starts making three times the money he was making before. Samuel Colt is making more money. He's able to get investors so he can get more machinery, and he becomes one of the most successful business people in America. All because of specialization. Brilliant, right? They figured it out. At the end of the 18th century, they figured it out. When did Jews figure this out? Well, a little earlier. 2,000 years earlier, to be precise. (laughs) How? Why? Well, first of all, the why. Think about this for a moment. If one of the people doesn't show up for work in the old way, how do the rest of us around the table feel? We might say, hey, wonder what happened to Joe today. But do we really care? No, we just keep doing what we're doing. I was m- assembling and making revolvers yesterday. I'm doing them today. Hey, Joe, you know, we get paid by how many revolvers we produce, right? Sam Colt says, I will pay you you know, $50 for every revolver you finish. So you know, you try and work as quickly as you can. And uh, if somebody's not at the table, who cares? But what happens if we show up for work under the new system, where my job is only to make barrels, and yours is only to make cylinders, and the guy, Joe, who isn't here today, his job was to make triggers. What happens now? How do we feel? Come on, you've got to work with me if you want to get out of here tonight. (laughs) a motivational speaker in a hospice this isn't going to (laughs) work you've got to help me here a little bit how do we feel right this isn't good news because I can't we can't get a revolver out of the shop without him now think to yourself for a moment we immediately jump up we say we can't get going I mean Unless Joe's there turning our triggers, we can't get revolvers made. So we all run over to his house and say, Joe, are you okay? And he says, you know, I feel awful. I've got a a cold." We say, listen, we're going to get you some nice hot tea, and we're going to get you a nice scarf. We want, we care about him. Now, you might say, well, wait a second. We don't really care about him. We just care about our own pockets. And so we need him back. But that isn't true not true, because what does God rather have from us? I'll put it this way. I've got two neighbors. On one side of my house, I've got a neighbor who, between you and me, I don't think he's crazy about Jews. (laughs) But um, once we were on vacation and the hot water heater in the garage burst and water was pouring out, he saw it. He got into the house, turned off the water, called a plumber, got it repaired. When I came back, he said, "Hey, here's what happened. Your your hot water's fine now. This is what I had to do. I hope it's okay." I said, "Okay, you're wonderful. I really appreciate it." Another time we we drove off on a, an outing with, without uh, daughter number five. It happens, you know. That movie Home Alone is absolutely <laughs> true. If, if you've got a family of more than six children, you're bound to lose one of them from time to time. And so it happened, you know, we would drive off, and little Miriam, we were three miles down the road. Three miles down the road, and Rochelle says, Daddy, is Miriam in the car? Yeah, we had a big van. Uh, is Miriam in the car? I said, well, she must be. We always do a count off. Yeah, but we didn't do a count off today. What? We didn't do a count off. Look around the van. Maybe she's sleeping in the ba- no, Miriam. Right, we Whee! turn around, go racing back, and she's she's not like we can't find her. And so we knock next door at the neighbour, the one who doesn't like Jews. And Miriam comes running. Oh, she said, I knew you'd come back, Daddy. And and the neighbour says. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, we saw her hanging around. She'd obviously been there. We, we took her in to take care of it. She said, Daddy, can I just stay here, or do I have to go with you? You know, they gave they gave me some cake, and look at this lovely game they're letting me play. This is the guy who probably doesn't care much for me, but look how nicely he behaves. On the other side, I've got another neighbor. Now, this neighbor loves me. Really? <laughs> The trouble is that he kicked my kids, he killed my cats, and he keeps my car. But he loves me. In his heart, he really does. He just can't control him, he does rotten things.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Who's my favorite neighbor? Action trumps intention. Action, we're not God, we cannot read into somebody else's mind. We can't, only God can do that. And we can only judge one another on action not on intentions. Like all of you, when I check out of my hotel here, I'm going to leave money for the housekeeping staff on the table. I never check out of a hotel without doing that. Why? She gets paid. Well, yeah, that's between her and the hotel management. But she did me a favor. I was brought to the hotel tired after a long journey. I came in the room was spotless. The bathroom looked like no human being had ever been there. The light bulbs all worked. Look how nice she made my arrival here. Of course I have to say thank you to her. Well, wait a sec. She didn't do it for you. Lappin, she doesn't even know you. Wait, now you're starting to read into her mind. you probably right. Maybe yes, maybe no. But I can only go on the action, not on the intention. And the action is, she took care of me, and I have to acknowledge that. That's, that's the only right way to do it. So we, um, we say, yes, fine. Uh, somebody does something, and yes, uh, he, he expects to be paid, but, sure, but that's not the point. That's not the point. When we rush over to Joe's house and we say, Joe, can we get you some hot tea? We want you back. Well, obviously it's in our interest. But does Joe feel good? Sure he does. Because he knows to judge us by our actions. We cared about him. We came over and we spoke to him. And we brought him tea. He feels warm. He feels connected. He feels that his brothers care about him. The old way far as we're concerned, if he never shows up again, it still doesn't make any difference. And so what does God prefer? Well, I'll explain to you as soon as I show you how we know about specialization. Towards the end of the book of Genesis, Father Jacob is about to die. What does he do? Calls all his all right, that's a little bit better. I'd hate to have to spend an hour on remedial Bible here. <laughs> Calls his sons, and he says, I want to give you a blessing. Now, if I had written the Bible instead of God, I probably would have had Jacob say something like this. Boys, you've been gigantic pains
0: <laughs> in
1: the neck. I'm 147 years old. And you know what? I've had enough. So God bless you. I'm out of here. That's what I would have done. What does What does God have Jacob do? Spend thirty verses going through Reuben, my son. This is where you're going to fit in. Uh, Simon, you Levi. This is you. Judah. This is what you. Could, it just doesn't stop. What's going on there? It's not an accident. Because at the end of Deuteronomy, there's somebody else now who's getting ready to die. And his name is? Hello. Oh, no. Pastor Rob, I'm starting to get impressed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they were just shy
1: before. They're, holding They're clearly holding back. Now, this is good. This is wonderful. So uh, Moses is about to die. And uh, he now wants to bless each of the tribes. And again, if it was me, if I I would have said, you know, children of Israel, I can't tell you what a gigantic pain in the neck you've all been. These last 40 years in the desert didn't feel like 40 years to me. It felt like a 1,000 years. It was like it was never going to end. I've really had enough. I want to go home to our Father in heaven. So as far as you people are concerned, God bless you all. I'm gone. I could do it in two verses. Moses takes 30 votes. Why? Why? It's very simple, my friends. I like Alan Edmonds' shoes. It just happens to be I spend a lot of time on my feet. I hope to spend a lot of time on my feet this evening. So I like a shoe that's comfortable. And you know how it is. I'm sure there are other shoes that would work for me, but a man gets used to things, right? And I'll, I'll wear these shoes till they've got holes in them. I just like them. Did you know that I sort of say... a quiet little prayer every now and then for the Allen Edmonds company that they should do well, because I don't want to have to start looking for another shoe that fits me. (laughs) I want them to stay in business. Would I care about them if I made my own shoes at home? Who cares about anybody else? It's only because we all do our own thing that we do well, and we let everybody else supply all our other needs. That's why we feel connected with everybody else. I have an accountant, great accountant. If he retires, I'll kill him. <laughs> and if I don't, you know what? God probably will. Because you don't like what you're just leaving me alone. you have taking care of my stuff for twenty years, and now you want to go and play golf. What about me? It's one of the reasons that retirement is immoral. (laughs)
0: We're
1: (laughs) going to need to work on this. So, it's it's part of what God wants us to do, and here's how it works. In essence, our boss saying to us, you can all go and do your own thing. If you want to, you can grow your own wheat and make your own bread, and you can keep cows and make your own milk, and you can grow some cotton and make some clothes. You can do that if you want. And you will live like a subsistence peasant in poverty, pain, stress, and you probably won't live that long. But if you do it my way, says God, I don't want you to do everything. I want you to find your very best way to serve all my other children. And if you do that, I'll reward you with the abundant blessing of financial wealth. And that's why countries, societies, people who picked up on the idea of specialization did so much better than those that didn't. And that's why it is that if you spend all your time doing your business, and doing your own books, and doing your own taxes, and then lying under your car on Saturday afternoon to fix it. And then you say, why isn't God blessing me? Well, because you're not following his directions, you fool. It's simple. He doesn't want you to do those things. He wants you to hire a bookkeeper. He wants you to find somebody to do your taxes. He wants you to find somebody to fix your car. And that way, Number one, he'll do a better job on the car than you do. It'll come with a guarantee, and you don't give yourself a guarantee. (laughs) And number two, he makes a living. Number three, you get all that time back. Why would I mow my own lawn when for $10 an hour I can pay the teenager down the block? So in that one and a half hours that he mows the lawn cost me $15, do you know how much money I can make in an hour and a half if I help somebody write a business plan? That's probably, you know, three or $4,000. Why wouldn't I do that? This is the system that God set up. And that's why it is that when God creates the world, in chapter 2, we find that he then creates man. Now, all the way up till that point, all the way, all the 34 verses and, and more that we see, after everything that God does, God looks at it and says, hmm, that's good. When's the very first time we hear the Lord saying, not good? Like, he gets grumpy all of a sudden. Why does God get grumpy? What What is the first time that he says, Oh, not good. In, in Hebrew, by the way, law tov. Not good. You know where it is? Not good for man to be alone. Now, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that God's talking only about Adam's matrimonial prospects. No. This is a general statement. And that's why you would have expected, would you not, that right after uh, God says, not good for man to be alone, very next verse should be, God put Adam into a big deep sleep and he took out a part of him. That should be what happens. It isn't. He goes off into a whole zoological expedition of looking at all the animals. You know, you'd you'd think Adam would be saying, hey, God, can we get back to the dame? You know? No! You know why? Because Marriage was an important part of it, but this is a general prescription from the Lord. It's not good for man to be alone at any point, ever. And I ask you to think for just a moment, what is it like? Imagine if you would that some strange thing takes away every other person in the United States of America except you. Now, I know what your first reaction is. you like, oh, great, I'll finally be able to get a parking spot on State Street. <laughs> but, um, but what about after that? What about after that? You think to yourself, well, you know what? I'm going home to watch a little bit of television. I never get a chance to handle the remote and pick the program. I'm all by myself. This is great. What happens when you flick on the TV? Well, nothing, because there's nobody left operating the uh, TV set you say, fine, all right, I'll read a book, start reading. Pretty soon the sun starts going down and you click a light switch on. Nothing happens. Nobody operating the utility. You start thinking to yourself, you know what, this being alone isn't all as cracked up to be. And you say, well, at least I'm going to go out for dinner. You step out of the house and you say, oh, I can't believe it. There's nobody in any of the restaurants. What well, okay, at least I can go to the market because they all belong to me. There's nobody else I may as well go. Well, you know, markets rotate their inventory like every three days, and, and part of that is stuff doesn't last forever. Even canned stuff doesn't last forever. Pretty soon the can develops an ominous-looking bulge. You do not want to eat it. It's called botulism. So, uh, so for how long are you happy as being the last person on the earth or in the in the country? Well, pretty soon you're going to realize that you better plant something and pray to God that it harvests before you starve to death. And you suddenly realize that you are living worse than the most poverty-stricken, subsistence peasant in Bangladesh because you're all by yourself. What's changed? Nothing. You've still got your car, except it's kind of tough to get gas now. Um, But all that's changed is that you're alone. There's no more people out there. Other people are our wealth. And it follows, therefore, that the more people that we are connected with, the better off we're going to do, obviously. Everything, everything in Scripture points towards God's desire for us to be connected with one another. Marriage is a fundamental aspect of it. But he wants us to be connected. And he rewards us. He rewards us with the incredible blessing of financial abundance. And so it doesn't matter what field you're in you have to be in some sort of field? What sort of field? Well, about the worst advice that anybody ever gives graduates is, well, you're now going to be leaving the school, leaving the college, you're now going to be entering the workplace and you've got to find what you really love doing where you'll never work a day in your life, you'll just be loving everything you do. You've got to go out there and do what you love doing. This is why there is an entire generation of unemployable American graduates in the field of middle-period Etruscan pottery. (laughs) (laughs) Because they took the stupid advice. Do what you're interested in. No Jew ever told his child that. I remember as a teenager, I told I said, you know what I'd really like to be? And my father says, no, I don't actually, and before you tell me, I'm not interested. What sort of dad are you? All the other people's dads want to know what they want to do. He says, yes, that's why they're all poor. Because the right thing is to find out what God's other children need you to do. And then learn to love it. And this, my friends, is why it is that every single time you listen to an interview of a fireman or a policeman or a lawyer or a plumber, and I, I hear it all the time, and, then you know, he talks about his life, and at the end they say, well, if you had to do it all over again, what would you like to be? Like 99% of the time, what do they always say? Same thing. So what, is this some kind of miracle that somehow all of these people miraculously fell into exactly the kind of occupation that they love? No, of course not. They learned to love it as they were doing it. And that's what we have to do. And so, any time... Anytime you're interviewing for a job and the interviewer says, so what are your long-term goals and dreams? Trick question, don't answer it. (laughs) I wouldn't give you a job if you answered that question. I couldn't care less about your long-term goals and dreams. (laughs) I only care, look, do you mind if I'm candid with you? Is that okay? All right, because I don't want to waste your time. I mean, I'm really good at massaging with warm butter. I mean, I could massage you here all evening and you'll have a, you know, be loved but you, you'll get absolutely nothing of any value. Um, when somebody's interviewing with me, I'm only interested in one thing, and that is, is he going to make my life easier or better? Is he going to improve my business, bottom line? That's all I care about. And when I say, so tell me about your interests, tell me about your long term, I'm only saying that to exclude it if he answers that wrong, he's out. I only have one way that I want to hear him answer that question, which is, well, I'll tell you what I'm totally focused on, is I'm focused on finding a position where I can make a difference, where I can add to the bottom line and make the life of my supervisor as easy as I can. Whoa, you're hired. <laughs> you're in. I'm not interested in anything else. All of this is because God wants us to connect. And so He rewards us. You take care of each other, and then I'll take care of you. And um, there was a period we we tried not homeschooling our children for a year. Not all of them, some of them. We sent two daughters to a a boarding school in Denver, a Jewish Bible uh, school. And they went there, and we were trying to think, how do we use biblical principles? Because each one, was, they were both in different classes, and they got all excited, and all these friends. And we realized after the first few weeks, they barely talked to each other. Now, um, we didn't, there was no email, and so uh, we used to write handwritten letters. And they used to love getting letters from us. <coughs> so here's how we used to write. Uh, we take two pieces of paper, if my wife was writing or if I was writing and we would write each word, each successive word of the letter on the other piece of paper. And then we'd mail them off to each one. You get it? Each letter to each girl is utterly incomprehensible. The only way this works is for them to get together at lunch and devote 20 minutes to reading our letter together. And then they got quite good at this. Dear Rina, this, this, is, and then sort of recite out the letter from each piece of paper, and we force them to get together. That's what God does with specialization. You don't want to do it his way? Fine. Starve to death. (laughs) You can do that if you wish. But if you want to go his way, then you specialize. You find your best way of serving my other children and let everyone else do the same thing. And that's why we, we Jews, uh, we say grace before meals. We also say grace after meals. It's a fairly short one. But um, here's what it says in, in a nutshell. Blessed art thou, Lord, Master of the Universe. Um, we, we thank you for all this food made possible by your goodness in creating lots and lots of human beings, each of whom has his own deficiency thank you Lord what does that mean do you know why I eat because I'm able to serve you I eat because you want to buy this only because it gives you something you don't already have you have a deficiency you have a deficiency in ancient Jewish wisdom on making money do you know why your plumber eats? Because you have a deficiency in fixing your own pipes. Each of us is supposed to have deficiencies so is that we get connected with other people. And what that does is free up our time to do what we do best and it frees up our time for us to become even better at what we do. And so... It becomes re- really important. Actually, what's really important is for us to pause for a quick break. Should we do that? Give everyone a chance to catch your breath. All right? Okay. Good. Everyone caught their breath. Let's move right on. <laughs> no, that's I'm 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 super eager, as you can tell. But if you promise not to take more than seven minutes, uh, if we I'm going to start speaking again in seven minutes' time. Okay. Hi, everybody. So uh, everyone in the auditorium uh, took a break for a few minutes, um, and uh, some people went out, some people just stood up and stretched in their places, and um, we're, uh, people are, are back. It's exactly seven minutes <laughs> later, <laughs> and um, ready to launch back into uh, the speech. And I'm talking about uh, the fact that relationships produce money. Money doesn't produce relationships. And I gave as an example, and what I'm going to be giving as an example now, is the uh, biblical account of uh, how Joseph's brothers were angry at him, and they decided to to kill him. And uh, they were going to just leave him in a pit to die, when all of a sudden, and here's where we pick up. And so... Chapter 37, verse 26, has Judah saying, Hey, how do we make a dollar out of selling our brother? What happens next? We move along, and the eventually, as you know, Joseph uh, uh, ends up as, as, um, as a ruler in Egypt. The brothers come down to buy food. They don't recognize him. He knows just who they are. He sells them the food, and then he instructs his people put their money back in the bag. They come to the hotel that night, they open up their bags and they all freak out. Look, the money's there. And they say, we're being set up. They're going to accuse us of stealing. And they totally miss the message that Joseph is trying to tell them, which is, it's not about the money. It's about the relationships. I don't care about the money. I want brothers. That's what it's about. And then later in chapter 44, again, he sends the money back. And the brothers still don't get it, but you know who does get it? Jacob. And so when they go back the second time, Jacob says to them, listen, I think I'm beginning to get a reading on this weird ruler of Egypt. Here's what you must do. Take a little paper plate, put some nuts and honey and some baklava on it, take some saran wrap, stretch it over the top. Uh, fine, I'm, I'm, I mean, that's basically what he's doing. But I'm just testing to see if you're listening. And, um, and he, and he says, take that and give that, that the brothers say, yeah, this
0: is like the, I mean,
1: this is like, giving Bill Gates a hallmark card. He's the richest guy in the world. This is like Joseph, you know, this is the ruler of Egypt. We can't just go and give him a little paper plate of, of uh, it's like the stuff they give to, to you on the airplane, It used to give you a little bowl of nuts. I mean, it's absurd. And he says, just do it. And then we move along, and what do we find? The brothers give it to him and Joseph starts breaking down. Because this is his first sign. maybe somebody's getting the idea that it's about relationships it's not about the money and sure enough it's the relationship that matters and Joseph works with the brothers until they recognize that he even takes away Benjamin He he kept Simon now he takes away Benjamin and he wants to see if the brothers are the way they used to be If they're the way they used to be, don't forget they sold him to Egypt. So now they'd go back and they'd say, Dad, guess what? We lost another one. (laughs) Tough cookies. That's the way it works. And if they would have done that, it would have showed that they haven't learned to think. But Judah steps forward and says to Joseph, look, let me tell you the whole story behind this. And I want you to know there's no way we're leaving without Benjamin, even if we have to start a war with you. Even you'll have to kill us all. And Joseph now sees that they're beginning to understand. And that's why much earlier, you'll remember way back at the beginning of the story, when Jacob sends Joseph to visit his brothers. He says, go see your brothers looking after the flock, see how they are. Joseph meets a mysterious person on the way. And he says a beautiful, poignant phrase. In Hebrew, it says, et aha." I seek my brothers. And that's the theme of the whole story. All I want is my brothers. I want people who care about me as a brother, not people who see me as a way of getting some money. And my friends, we all can tell the difference. When a salesperson talks to us and views us just as a source of commission, you know it and I know it. And if we have any choice, if we're not pushed for time, we just soon say, you know what? I think I'll come back another day. You, you want to talk to somebody who relates to you. And there's an entire section of ancient Jewish wisdom on how to sell effectively. Wow. But you see already where it goes. There's got to be an authentic interaction. There's got to be a connection. There's got to be a relation, <coughs> And only possible to have a transaction. God wants us to connect. He wants his children to all take care of one another. I, um, uh, I, I got a car when I was 16. I used all my money I'd saved up from working to finally get a car and um, after about a week or so it started making a terrible terrible noise. And um, I spoke to my father, and he said, uh, you know what? There's a guy called Max Goldberg. He's got an auto repair shop. He's a member of my congregation. My father was a great rabbi. And um, he said, uh, go along, take him to his shop. So I did. i go down, take the car in, and a uh, man comes out. i say, are you Mr. Goldberg? He says, I am. I said, I'm Daniel Lappen, I'm the son of Raul. He said, oh, I know just who you are. What's the problem? I said, I'm not sure. He said, well, go, and he pops the hood, and he says, start it up. He starts it up. I start it up, and he puts his hands under the hood. Then he comes out. He makes the worst noise you ever wanted to hear a mechanic making.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: My blood ran cold. <laughs> and I said, Mr. Goldberg, what's wrong with it? He said, I don't know exactly. He says, why don't you sit here? Uh, Hang out here a bit. I'm going to take it around to the shopping back. I sat there. It felt like three weeks. Probably it was an hour. He brought the car back. It sounded like a sewing machine. It sounded beautiful. It was like music. I I love car engines. And so uh, he gives me the key, and I said, how much do I owe you? And I was really worried because I didn't have whole lot left after buying the car, and um, he said to me, uh, young man, um, there is no charge. Your father once did something for me that I can never repay him for, and so anytime you have a problem with your car, you just bring it here, I'll take care of it. So I get in the car, and I'm about to pull out, and all of a sudden, I think to myself, I can't do this. (laughs) This is dishonest." He thinks this is my father's car, and so he's doing a favor for my dad. But if he knew it was mine, there would be a charge. And so I pulled back in again. I found out. I said, Mr. Goer, I'm really sorry. I think there was a misunderstanding. I didn't make clear to you this is not my dad's car. It's actually mine. He said, I knew that. And I said, but I've never done anything for you. When you get older and you have children of your own one day, you will discover that if somebody does good things for your children, that's even better than them doing good things for you. And many, many, many years later, I was in I was on another continent, but when I had my first child, I called him up. He was an old man at that point. And I said, you remember me? He said, yes, I said, you're right. And he said, I know just what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. That's right. Why am I telling you this? Because I want to ask you, how do you think our Father in Heaven feels when he sees us taking care of his children? Mm -hmm. And that's why it is we use the same word service for worship service and for customer service because there's two ways of worshipping the boss one is directly and the other is taking care of his other children and he loves that just as much as when we serve him directly how does he reward us for that it's called wealth that is and so by now, you should all be getting clear that we are not talking about this idea of, you know, this is wealth is all in God's hands. so what we all have to do is, before we go to work on Monday morning, we all have to pray for money. And when we uh, come back from work, we should pray for a Ferrari. Now, it's not that God doesn't hear your prayers for the Ferrari. He did hear. He just said no. <laughs> because what he's really saying is, what did you do for anybody else? Why, why, why do you deserve a Ferrari? What, if, what have you done? Well, I've been taking care all week diligently of your other children. I've been coming home late. I've been taking care of all their needs. Okay? are you talking? Okay. And so it begins to make sense. Something that, that otherwise all by itself um, could appear to sort of be a little bit strange. But that is that um, God says uh, to Abraham, you're going to have children. You don't have to worry, you'll have children. Back in Genesis chapter 15. And uh, Abraham says, well, how, how do I know? i state of God, but that's a different conversation. He said, how do I know God? says, oh, you'll know all right. Your children will be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years. And Abraham drops into the fetal position. He says, I can't believe what have I done. Much worse than getting pain inflicted on you is your children to suffer pain. You know how awful that feels? And now look what I've done. Because I said, how do I know? God's answer is, oh, now you've got it. Yeah, your children are going to be slaves. That's how you're going to know. And Abraham said, oh, this is terrible. But there in chapter 15, verse 14, Abraham uh, is listening, and God's saying, and they're going to be tormented, and these people are going to be terrible. god said and afterwards your children will go out with great
0: wealth oh okay why did you tell me
1: that <laughs> that's what it looks like this is like it's like an anti-semitic stereotype you know i mean a pain suffering child oh but there's money and oh fine no problem we're, we're good Years go by, and finally God meets uh, Moses at the burning bush, and he says to him, I want you to go back there. I'm going to give you some little tricks there to impress the Egyptians, and I want you to take them out. By the way, before they leave, I want you to make sure that all the Israelites go around everywhere in Egypt, bank deposits, jewelry stores safety deposit boxes, everywhere they must go and take all the money. Later on, chapter we come to chapter 10 and then chapter 12, and this thing is repeated again and again. And uh, don't forget, God says, before we leave you, all, you all got to go out and clear out all the cash and all the negotiables and everything from Egypt's got to go with you. And then when they actually leave, here's what happens. Um, and this is amazing. It says, and the children of Israel took unleavened bread. We call it matzah. Because they were in such a hurry to leave, there wasn't time for the dough to rise. Do you know what the next verse is? And now they went to fulfill God's instruction and they went and visited all the banks and all the jewelry stores and everywhere there was any money and they took everything so let me get this right they were in such a hurry now I've watched my wife bake bread it takes two hours for the dough to rise so they're in such a hurry they didn't have two hours for the dough to rise but they had enough money, they had enough time to go to all the jewelry stores and all the banks to get all the money How does that work? Again, great anti-Semitic stereotype. You guys are in a big rush, excepting if there's money to be made, we got time. (laughs) That's what it sounds like. But no, it's an understanding of what money is. This is now the end of Egypt's time on the stage of world history. That's the end. You never hear of Egypt again after this. You look at the years... You look at the archaeology, this is the end. Egypt is finished. And now, when it's time to build the tabernacle in the desert, and it's using loads of gold and precious stones and all these things, where did they have it from? Oh, right there. When they built the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai, where did they get all that gold from? Right over there. That's what they brought out of Egypt with them. This was the beginning, This, this was it because what happens when you're a slave one of the terrible sufferings of being a slave is relationships get shattered cuz you're just trying to stay alive you're just trying to you're trying to please the master that's what what happens and so you don't really have time to connect with others and normally when you connect with others you connect with people in a way that you do each other favors and you help each other and that way through the 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 magic mathematics of God's human creativity. When two people get together, they don't have twice as many good ideas. They, they get 50 times as many good ideas as one person. But if you're in slavery, you don't get that. And so the transition from slavery to freedom involves creation of wealth. Because wealth always goes hand in hand with good human connectivity and there's good human connectivity, it really works well. And so there's a reason that Jewish last names were always related to occupations. I don't know if you've sort of come across that, but, uh, you know, names like Goldberg or Silverman or Wasserman, all of these words told you what the person did for a living. These words are all derived from German because... For the, the entire medieval period in Europe, most Jews spoke German or variations of, of German. So, um, you know, Wasserman was the guy who sold water. They didn't have piped water, indoor plumbing. He used to come with a wagon with a big barrel on it, and housewives would come down and fill up their utensils every morning. His name was the waterman in German, Wasserman. Um, you know, Goldman, uh, Goldberg, uh, Weinberg, another famous U- Weinberg. Means somebody who uh, makes wine, a um, a, a vin- has a vineyard. He makes wine, sells wine. Um, Drucker was the guy who did the printer. Uh, Federman was the guy who sold blankets and pillows, and so just this is like the best business card in the whole world. <laughs> as soon as you're introduced to somebody, he knows what you can do for him, and so we have to we have to relate to that and learn. You've got to be able to say to yourself, is there a way in which I serve other people, and how do I let them know about it? So just because I have a job pulling uh, coffee at a well-known national chain whose name I'm not, I'm not going to mention because I don't think they are donors to the church, uh, but if, do, do they tie to the church? Big national coffee chain, as far as you know. No, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mention their name, I'm not giving them free advertising. But if if somebody somebody works uh, serving coffee at this national chain, you might say to yourself, well, okay, I've got a job at this company, but no, I don't look at it that way. The way the way to look at that is, hey, I am in the beverage business. And at the moment I have one customer who buys my services, namely the company. And in this process, I take care of their customers as well. But I'm a beverage specialist. I don't work for them. I work for me. I'm a company. I'm an entity. And they buy my services by paying me a certain amount every week. And so if I want to apply for a raise, then I have a different mindset. I'm not going in as a supplicant saying, um, can I please have a raise? You're basically saying, (laughs) I'm raising my prices. (laughs) Just like you do. When you want to raise, you don't say to your uh, customers, we want a raise, we want you to pay us Instead of seven dollars for a cup of coffee, we want eight. They say, "Guess what? Prices went up." You know, oh, that's funny. I only paid seven dollars for this little cup of coffee yesterday, and they say, "Yeah, went up today. It's a new price." Okay, take it or leave it. And obviously, you've got to be in the same position. The way to handle a raise, and it's it's not that simple. You you've got to bring your validation. You've got to you've got to know how and when to do it, and how it, there's a lot to know. But the basis and the foundation of it is that you're not a supplicant. You're an independent business professional. Changes everything. Now, the problem, among others, is that everybody gets conditioned into believing that making money isn't good. That somehow you're taking away from people. I um I send out a free weekly email called Thought Tools. Did any of you Any of you get it? Okay, not enough, but something. <laughs> and so, uh, every little every few years, somebody writes in and says, "You know what? I don't want to get it anymore." because it's become very commercial. I said, what do you mean it's become very commercial? It's always been commercial. They say, well, every single thought tool has, uh, at the bottom it says, here's the product in the resources we publish that we think you should buy. And I say, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And they say, well, it's sort of very commercial. We don't really... Like, we, we're learning about the Bible and God and Scripture. It's it sort of jars to find a commercial thing in there. And I say, my goodness, have you been indoctrinated by that culture out there? Tell me again why you think there's a problem in me exposing you to something I think can be useful to you. Now, you may disagree, in which case, don't buy it. But you're a I'm trying to help you? Well, yes, but you make me money that way. You better believe it. <laughs> of course. Of course I am. You know why? Because you don't know what money is. Money is a certificate of performance. Money means you've served another one of God's children. I would put it this way. I'm I would actually ask you all to take out a uh, $100 bill, or a 20, or a 5, or a 1, if you must. But um, I don't, I don't want to do that because I know you probably think I'd ask you to eventually to pass them all up to the front. Uh, but I would just ask you to imagine that you're holding up a dollar bill. Now I'm looking out at hundreds of dollar bills waving in the air. Maybe they're $100 bills. Hundreds of $100 bills, I hope. And I'm looking at them, and I say, now, any of you that held up a convenience store on your way here this evening, and that's how you got the money, put it back. I don't want to see that. <laughs> and I look, and the same number, and I say, okay, fine. Anybody who mugged a little old lady and took her purse, and that's where you got the dollar bill from, <laughs> put it back. I don't want to see it. I look, and all those dollar bills are still waving in the air. I think this is terrific. All right, any of you that defrauded somebody And took their money and that's how you got this? No. You're still waving the dollar bills. Well, that's very interesting. So if you didn't rob a store, you didn't mug a little old lady, you didn't defraud anybody, how did you get that money? Do you know what the answer is? I know the answer. The answer is you pleased another one of God's children. There is no other way you got it. Now, you might call that person your boss, maybe he's your customer, maybe he's your client, I don't know, maybe it's a relative, but there's another human being out there who voluntarily gave you that dollar bill. You must have done something that pleased them. Why would they do it otherwise? That dollar is... Imagine I'm a roofer, and I'm about to take my kids out one Sunday afternoon. We're going we're to go to the, the shopping mall. The phone rings just before we go, and uh, it's a guy I know. He says, you're a roofer, right? I say, yeah. He says, you've got to come over. There's a, a leak in our kitchen roof. The water's coming down in the middle of the kitchen. My wife is going crazy, and to tell you the truth, I'm not that happy about it either. You've got to come over. And, and so I say to him, you know what? I was just about to take my kids out to the mall. He says, but Lappin, I've heard your teaching. Is it more important to help another human being or is it more important to take your kids to the mall? I said, no, you're exactly right. I needed to hear that. Not only is it more important for me to take care of your problem, it's more important for my children to see their dad taking care of, what's the mall? So I tell him, hey, guess what? We don't have to go to the mall. <laughs> we get to help Jake and his problem. Now, you go get the tools. You help me get the ladder. You, we're going to get some shingles. And we dump them all in the pickup, and we go racing over to Jake's house. And we get the ladder up. There's a knock away there. And in, in an hour, it's all fixed up. The water stopped. Uh, Jake's wife couldn't be happier. Jake is really grateful. And uh, he says, now, you've really helped me how many certificates of performance do you need? (laughs) And I say, well, um, I think that's about 100. He says, well, I count out 100 little green certificates of performance. He gives me, says, thank you. I said, you don't even have to thank me. This this is the proof that I I did it right. So that night, it's time to go out for dinner. I want to take my wife to the best kosher restaurant in Tinley Park.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so we go in, and um, a guy comes out of the kitchen and says, what do you want? I said, well, we want two of the biggest fattest steaks you got and a heaping mountain of french fries. <laughs> He says, "What well, you want me to go into the hot kitchen and work there to make you steaks and fries? I say, well, it says outside, restaurant. He says, yeah, but that's only for people who are part of the club. I said, what club? He says, the club of human beings who take care of God's other children. I say, Oh, why did you say so? I'm in that club. He says, prove it. I say, sure, take a look. He says, where did you get it? Like the to make sure I didn't hold up the store. So I say, well, I picked somebody's room all afternoon. He says, oh, in that case, it's an honor to serve you. Sit down, make yourself comfortable. I'll be out in, in no time at all with your meal. At the end of the meal, I say to him, and how many certificates of performance do you need for what you did for me? He says, 60. I count off 60 for him. What money is? You can you can go to university and get a hundred different definitions of money, and there's really only one that is true and correct and, and matters, and that is, hey, it's proof that you served another human being. That's all it is. And so you don't sit around asking God, please help me! I need six hundred dollars to cover the the bills this month. No. What are you okay? No. You say, please, God, open my eyes and show me more of your children that I can serve. And the money comes by itself. It's all you have to focus on. And so if you decide that you want to be a specialist in middle period Etruscan pottery, good luck to you. But you're going to be one of those folks on the sidewalk with a hat saying, can you spare a dime? Because you're not helping anybody. You know why? Because there's nobody who cares about middle period crust and pottery. It's your obsession. You're being selfish. You're focusing on your own thing. We don't care about it. You're doing nothing for us. But if a person says, now let me look around and see, what do folks here need? Well, I I, I see there's, there's no easy way to get to the airport. So I think I'm going to start an airport service. I'll drive people when they need to go to the Well, now you're talking. You're going to get certificates of performance because people appreciate you doing what they really need. There's no, there's no benefit in just doing the things you want to do. Of course not. And so the problem is that people are uncomfortable naming their price. Have you ever noticed that? Ever noticed where somebody does something for you, whether it's uh, you know, mowing the lawn or whatever it is, and um, and you say, so how much do I owe you? Sometimes they just hand you a little piece of paper, an invoice that's got the amount, you know, the plumber, John's plumbing, and he gives you the... B- but he doesn't answer you because he's kind of uncomfortable saying $150. What? $150 for 10 minutes of work? Well, he says, yeah. Um, it, 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 it was really only... for the 10 minutes of work, but it's $130 for all the years of experience. I knew what to do. (laughs) But um, we're uncomfortable. You know, you get it also with young people, babysitters particularly. You come home, babysitter is taking care, everything's good, everything's wonderful, and you want to pay her, and you say, so how much do I use? And she moves her foot around the carpet because she's uncomfortable. People have been indoctrinated into believing that making money is bad and that you are taking something away from other people. And so for them to pay you is kind of, I'm taking stuff from other people. But wait a second. I really like having a reliable babysitter on call. I want you to be paid. In fact, I want to pay you so well that you always give my job priority—that's what I really want to do. Where does this mistake come from? And so, um, I'm not sure if we're going to get much further than this tonight because I don't want to uh, carry on talking past the point where you stop <laughs> listening. But um, but here is, uh, is is what goes wrong. Everything in the world. ...can be divided into either spiritual or physical. Now, please bear with me for a moment when I say... ...the word spiritual does not mean godly or holy or pious or anything like that. Spiritual just means something that cannot be measured in a laboratory. Okay, you with me? Fine. So, um, imagine, if you would, a, a woman coming to a doctor... Now, I don't know that medical science has got exactly to the point I'm about to describe, but I can tell you that if it hasn't, it will very soon. And the woman says to the doctor, I'm pregnant, I haven't the faintest idea who the father is. Uh, Are you able to tell me anything about my to-be-born child? The doctor says, sure, what do you want to know? She says, well, I'd like to know if it's male or female. The doctor says, nothing to it. Quick test, here you are, it's a boy. She says, "Uh, okay, fine. Um, I'd like to know if he's going to a large boy or is he going to be a very sort of thin and slender boy? He says, no problem, I'll tell you that quickly and easily, no problem. Uh, she, okay, now, uh, would you ever tell me if my uh, son-to-be is likely to, to get bald in life or will he have a full head of hair? You know, since Eisenhower, uh, we've never elected a bald president.
0: <laughs>
1: you know why? Because television came in after Eisenhower so that means, for instance, that for me the only avenue is dictator. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> And there are going to be some changes when I'm in charge? I can tell you that. <laughs> so, uh, so she says to the doctor, "Is my child going to be bald or have a full head of hair?" The doctor says, "Let me do another test." She says, "It's going to have a full head of hair." She says, "That's great." Um, "Is he going to be black or white?" doctor says, oh, no problem, I'll do it. She carries. on, she says, Doc, I'm on a roll. I love all these things you're telling me about my kid. Um, would you be able to tell me, is he going to be a, a loyal friend? doctor says, huh? She says, well, you know, could you just run a test? I want to know if this baby I'm going to give birth to in three months is going to be a loyal friend. doctor says, I can't tell you. She says, what are you talking about? She says, I can't tell you that. She says, okay, fine. Is he going to be a resourceful and resilient person? Is he going to be the sort of person who when he gets knocked down, he picks himself up and tries again? I can't tell you that. She says, Doc, is he going to be somebody who's able to communicate effectively and to articulate ideas uh, fluently? I can't tell you that. She says, I don't get it. How come some things you can tell me something? Doc says, very simple. All the unimportant physical things I can tell you, spiritual things I can't tell you. Those, many of those depend on you. I can't tell you spiritual, I can only tell you physical. But when you hire somebody, what do you care about, physical or spiritual? I mean, do you really care if the person is male or female? Do you really care if the person is black or white? Do you really care if they've got a lot of hair or they're Well, you don't, with the one exception, and that is if you're trying to hire a swimsuit model. Which uh, which I uh, applied for a number of years ago is <laughs> not <laughs> and the laughter is for what?
0: <laughs>
1: and um, I applied at uh, three different swimsuit companies to be a male swimsuit model, and uh, I actually I, I, I got rejected by all three, which which just really proved to me that anti-Semitism is alive and well in. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> physical and spiritual. What happens if um, if I have a saxophone? Is that thing physical or spiritual? Physical. How about a tune?
0: Spiritual.
1: Totally spiritual. Here's one of the great differences between physical and spiritual. It's a it's a rule. It's a principle of physics, which is that. Any physical object can only be in one point on what is called the space-time continuum. Or in in another, a better way of putting it is, any physical object can only be in one place at any given time. So if you go to the railway station today and you go there tomorrow, why don't you bump into yourself? Only because time has changed. And at any given time, you can only be in one place because you are a physical body. That saxophone, if I put it here and then I turn around and when I turn back again, it's gone and it's there on the table. Well, now it's not here anymore. It's there. I'm telling you something pretty straightforward. Here's where it gets interesting. How about if I have a tune and I whistle the tune a few times and then... Hundreds of people go out of here this evening whistling the tune. What have you taken away from me? Nothing. In the first example, when you took my saxophone, you took my saxophone. But when you take my tune, not only didn't you diminish my life, you've actually improved it. You've made the world more musical. There's more people knowing a tune. This is very important because let's ask ourselves whether money is more like a tune or more like a saxophone. Let's start off in saying what is money? Is it strips of colored paper in your wallet? Or is it clinking discs of metal in your pocket? What is it? Well, maybe it's that brown strip of iron oxide molecules on the back of your credit card. Or maybe it's one a hard drive. Or how about if I write you a check for $10? Have we brought money into being? Looks like it. How about if I write on a napkin? I'll pay you $10 on Friday. What's that? Money! How about if I don't write anything? I just say uh, let's shake on it, I'll give you $10 on Friday. Money! So what is Money! one of the most amazing things I've told you all evening. Money is symbolized by discs of metal, strips of colored paper, magnetized iron oxide molecules. But those are just symbols. The money itself is totally spiritual. Now, here is, if, you know, if you still think that that's rabbinic smoke and mirrors, then um, I, I'll prove it to you. I mean, very, very simple straightforward proof. Would you agree that um, in order to destroy something physical, you actually have to be there. If, uh, if somebody damages your car windshield with a hammer, they cannot do it from Kansas. They actually have to be there by your car, right? Um, what's your reputation, physical or spiritual? Can I damage your reputation from far away? Sure, because it's spiritual, of course. Physical things can only be damaged right up close. Spiritual things can be damaged from a distance. Now let's figure out about money. I've got to tell you something. Sorry for this interruption. Bad news. Bad news. At 3 o'clock in the morning. No, there's not going to be snow. But in 3 o'clock in the morning, in another 6 hours, a gigantic meteorite is going to hit the world Tell you this. Other folks who haven't been here all evening already know it from their TVs. But it falls to me to give you this bad news. I mean, I mean, think about it. We've had a pretty good ride up for here
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: And it's not just the Christians, the Jews as well, everybody's going. So, fine. I'm I'm sorry about it, but it's just a reality. Find a way. What has happened to your net worth when you step outside this evening? I don't care what your net worth was up till this afternoon, but what is your net worth when you go outside and you discover everybody knows this bad news? And if you're not sure of the answer, why don't you just try and sell something? Anyone know what your net worth has just become? Zero! Zero. Nothing you own has any value anymore. That's what happened. Now, I've got good news for you and bad news for you. The bad news is that I lied. (laughs) And I think it's the only lie I'm telling you all evening. The good news is that there's no meteorite coming at 3 a.m. It's not happening. But wait a moment. It doesn't matter, does it? If everybody believes that it's happening, what's the net result on your net worth? Zero. Same thing, you're still zero. It's, it has nothing to do with whether it's true or not. It all has to do with belief. Now you've just learned the meaning of a recession. If everybody believes that things are bad, then they will be. You want to end the recession, and I believe we're still in a recession. I just look at wages. I look at unemployment. I look at friends of mine who are hurting. Uh, I, I don't. I don't buy it that we're out of the recession. I don't buy that at all. But if you want to be out of the recession, all it's simple. All you've got to do is persuade 320 million people that everything's going to be okay again by Monday. That's all you need to do, and it will be. And that is why it is that we have a beautiful expression. In belongs, you would think, on the walls of churches. But it isn't. The phrase is in God and where do we find that expression? Not on the churches, but on the money. You don't need to put it on the churches. You don't need it on the synagogues, because those of us who are there know that in God we trust. You know where you have to put it? On the money. Because people don't realize That it's on the money that everything depends on faith. Everything depends on trust. If you manage to persuade uh, a group of people that the money has no value and that its value is going to go down, it will. So did you see how I destroyed your money from a distance? All I did was persuade a whole bunch of people out there that things are terrible. And you go out, your money has no value. That's how you know that money is spiritual. Only things that are spiritual can be damaged from a distance. Are you with me? It's important that you get that because one of the things that's changed in America, and it's very difficult to put major epochal change on an exact date because things shift. But round about 1960 was when things changed. A lot of things happened there. Before 1960, it was almost unknown for any educated American to know nothing about the Bible. Today, you've got people who are talking heads on television, talk day and night, and they have no idea if Leviticus is an aftershave lotion or a book. (laughs) There's never been a time in history where people who think of themselves as educated and sophisticated are utter ignoramuses about the book that shaped civilization. Do you know how many civilizations there've ever been on this planet? One. Do you know how many cultures? About 5,000. Plenty cultures. The Aztecs were a culture. It involved killing people and ripping their hearts out of them. That was one of the nice little worship exercises that particular culture did. Was it a civilization? Of course not. There's only one civilization, and that is the civilization created by the Bible. That's all. And if you don't believe me, why don't you just check up and see? 6,000 people have died in the last eight months, drowning in the Mediterranean. Were they trying to get from Africa to Italy, Europe, or were they trying to get from Europe to Africa? Well, you'd think half and half, right? I mean, you know, shipping traffic. I guess half those folks were trying to get to Africa and their uh, their, uh, boat sank, and half of them were trying to get from North Africa to, to Italy. No. Do you think Saudi Arabia has an illegal immigration problem? No. No. There's only one place on the planet that people are dying to get into. And that is countries that were built on the Bible. That's all. That's the civilization. And so Adam Smith was exactly right. The nature of the causes of the wealth and poverty of nations is really very simple. Nations that were founded on biblical principles created wealth. And the Two most biblically-based civilizations in history, and I I said only two, but you'll see it's one, and that is Israel and America. Exactly the same. And that is why uh, Jefferson and Adams and Franklin, when they were given the job at the Constitutional Convention of coming up with a uh, uh, a seal of the United States, do you know what they, they submitted? You can see pictures of it. The Israelites crossing the Red Sea, following God's pillar of fire. That was going to be the great seal of the United States. Because they saw themselves as having crossed the Atlantic in search of freedom and coming to a promised land, carrying only their Bibles, which is exactly what the Israelites did. Crossed the Red Sea, came into the promised land, carrying nothing but their Bibles. That's all. This is what the Bible has created. Countries that produced the wealth that served as a magnet for every other people were countries that were founded on the Bible. Now, today it's true. Today you don't find a whole lot of biblical presence in Sweden or in Germany, but it's still there. You have to look for it. But it's, it's every church, it's every cathedral, it's every—it's the way they name their families, it's the way family trees can be found in the back page of the family bible. It's still there. Not in the ruling class, not in the European Union, not in Brussels, but among the population, they still know what Christianity is. And today, where are parents of explosive economic energy in China that is becoming more and more Christian. More Christians in China than in the United States. Everybody knows that's good. Uh, July 2005, Wall Street Journal um, had somebody from the Chinese government saying, we are easing up on Christianity because it's the only way to rebuild our economy Uh, pockets of economic creativity in Africa. Where? Nigeria, Ghana, Zimbabwe. Who are they? They are Christian churches. And anybody, and, and I know Pastor Rob knows a lot about, you talk about massive churches there of people who really do believe in the boss. And guess what? They're not sending out emails saying, We've uh, we found documentation that you've got $400 million coming to you. Just send us $50. No. <laughs> That's not what they're doing. They're building cell phone networks. They're building distribution networks. They're building it's, – it's another world what's happening. It's not all of Africa. It's not the Muslim parts of Africa. I have to tell you the truth. It isn't. It's the Christian parts of Africa. Because the wisdom is in the Bible, this is where it comes from. And so, what happened in 1960, approximately, is a collapse of Christian commitment in the United States in the public arena, not in the churches of America. That stayed strong as it is today, but in the governing classes, in the opinion makers, and the and the. Uh, the, the shakers of entertainment and media, all of a sudden, atheism and secularism began to run things entirely. And so from around about that period, everything started deteriorating. Economically, I ask you to just think back. If You, you may not know this from personal experience, but in up till the 50s, an average American family lived an enviable middle-class lifestyle on the earnings of how many people? One. And today, you can't come out, you can't manage if both husband and wife are not slaving away. That's called a deterioration of quality of life. That's not an improvement. Don't tell me we've got flat-screen TVs now. That doesn't make up for my wife. Don't be fooled by this. As we began to abandon the book, we began to abandon these principles that allowed the economy to thrive. And we ended up with a a class of politicians who no longer had biblical integrity and now just quarter. A, an epidemic of wanting to spend other people's money. Now, people sometimes say to me when I say, "Well, we didn't come here to hear politics. Let me explain something to you. Politics is nothing more than the practical application of deeply held moral values. Taking away large sums of money from hardworking American families to sustain multi-generational dysfunction, is obviously somebody's moral value. It isn't mine, but it was somebody's because that law passed. It's different. And so I want you to realize that in the same way that the Bible has profound real-world impact on nations and societies, so it does In 1944, General Patton gave a speech just before a major battle in Europe in World War II. And I can't repeat the speech word for word because every fourth word was a profanity. But, um,
0: <laughs>
1: but it was a great speech nonetheless. <laughs> and here's one of the things he did say. He said, men, America has never yet lost a war and it never will. You know that? that point, America had fought 26 wars by 1944 and never lost one. And America won World War II. And then came the Korean War. And 1952, 1953, we didn't win the Korean War. I'm not sure we lost it, but we didn't win it either. And after that came Vietnam. That was called a loss got defeated. And um, and then came Iraq, where we spent a lot of money and a lot of blood. And I'm not sure exactly what we got for that. Did we win that war? I didn't see evidence of that. Afghanistan, we won that one? General Patton was right. You see, everything started changing. 55, 60, 65 up until that time, movies always portrayed business professionals. Rich people were good. It's a Wonderful Life, Frank Capra, was good. And the bad guys were real bad guys. In nineteen was it nineteen sixty maybe, they made a movie called The Manchurian Candidate. You remember who the bad guy, Pastor Justin, we were talking about this the the bad guy in that movie was Korea, North Korea, and the Russians, the communists, and they they uh, brainwashed American soldiers and send them back. It was a scary movie. They re- Paramount remade it in 2004. You know who the villain was? North Korea? No. Communists? No. The bad guy was the Halliburton Corporation. And. Since about 1960, every movie attacks business and attacks religion. The last movie, do you remember? If you haven't seen these, do yourselves a favor and don't rent the old black Bing Crosby, um, Boys Town, all the movies that show religious leaders as great people. Now, uh, people go, oh, they're not great people anymore. Look. or religious leaders. It's about 20 times more doctors than religious leaders. Mm-hmm. have operated drunk or taken sexual advantage of patients. There's no comparison. The fact is that religious leaders, for the most part, do wonderful work in America today. And up till 1960, that's kind of how it was. They were portrayed that way. Do you remember the sound of music? Do you remember the, the, the nun, the, the woman who was the head of all of She was a wise, compassionate woman. She was the one who knew that um, Julie Andrews must leave. What happened to the way religious people were portrayed after 1960? Yeah. Wow, gone! Every one of them is a pervert. Every one is a deviant. Every one is a bishop. Look at them. Just look at the movies. I can list you movie after movie after movie religious leaders and religious people in general are depicted as crazies at best. Crooks, creeps, and cranks for the most part. Business people, who's the villain today in primetime television? Who's the villain in the movies? Every single time. I, and I'll give you the scene. You've seen it a hundred times. The camera pans up the side of the gleaming glass skyscraper to the penthouse office and then it zooms in and you see this obviously wealthy businessman behind his desk. And meanwhile, he's confronted by the young hero who's discovered that this evil corporation is polluting the world and killing every creature on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, the businessman reaches into the right-hand desk drawer in his desk to take out what we all know every businessman keeps in his, which is a 357 Magnum revolver. <laughs> and he's just about to shoot our hero when the United States Marines come in and save the day. But every single time, the bad guy is somebody who is making or has made money. It is no wonder that 40% of the Democratic electorate call themselves socialists. Why? Well, think about it. I'm going to say something that's going to shock you, and then as soon as I've said it, I think I'll run for the door. (laughs) (laughs) It's very simple. If I could be persuaded that God doesn't exist and that we live in a totally material world, I would become a socialist. I'll tell you why. What would you do if you were the zookeeper and um, you went around and you, you... put out a uh, hundred pounds of hay in front of every elephant in your zoo. You come back a few hours later and you discover one elephant gathered all the hay. He got like a thousand pounds of hay. All the other elephants are sitting there looking hungrily. <laughs> Would you not redistribute the wealth? Of course. If we are animals, then we all must get exactly the same thing. And we have to take away from the animal that's got too much, give it to the animal. That's what you do. Because every single elephant eats the same amount according to a formula of his weight. Who here, out of hundreds of us here, could you find two people who eat the same? No. Some people like some some kind of cooking, some people like others. We're not animals. God created us in his image. As he is unique, so are we. God created us, then we are touched by the finger of God, we are a special creature, and there is no way to decide what everybody should get. One person wants to send his child to a Bible school, one person wants to send his child to a a, a state college, one person doesn't want his child to go to school at all. We're human beings, We we all have different desires and goals and ambitions, and that's how God created us. But if God didn't create us, then we are here only as the result of a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution that turned primitive protoplasm into plumbers and ballerinas. It's rude to laugh at other people's religion, by the way. No, this this is a religious belief out there it absolutely is a religious belief. And there are only two ways to explain our existence on this planet. One is animal primitive protoplasm turned into people and we're just another kind of animal. And the other is that God created us in his image and put us here. There are no other choices. And that's why the, the other side is just as much of a religious belief as ours is. And the result of that is that everybody should have exactly the same thing. Have you noticed what government housing looks like? If you paint your door a different color, they'll send somebody over to paint it back the way it was before because everything has to look exactly the same. Which is right. You know, you're keeping a bunch of mice. You want to standardize. You just have every mouse in a box that looks like every other box. Why wouldn't you? believe that we are here because of a process of materialistic evolution then you are going to believe that equality is more important than freedom. It's the most important thing is equality. And you're going to focus on that which means you've got to take away from some people, give to other people instead of giving everybody the freedom to achieve their own ability. Now, everybody has an obligation for charity. Everyone should tithe. Everyone should take care of those around us. who have. An ob- I'm not talking about that. But in terms of what happens to a society, in about 1960, a little bit earlier, a little bit later, but somewhere around there, as biblical faith began to erode from America, our economy began to decline. It's as simple as that. And so understand that when we're talking about Bible, we're talking about something which has the capacity to literally transform your financial destiny dramatically and that brings us to within just a minute or two of as far as we can go tonight I hope that there'll be other opportunities soon where we'll be able to go further I'm hoping that uh, those of you who, who want to take this further will equip yourselves with the resources that make it possible and by the way I'll sign books till midnight. I mean, I'm, I, I, I'm I'm as happy as could be to to bless your efforts by signing a book and personalizing it for you. That's never an imposition for me. I like doing that. And so, let's see where we are so far. We're recognizing that money is spiritual. We therefore understand that we have to develop certain spiritual aspects of our being in order to make money effectively. One of those things is learning how to connect with other people authentically with meaning. We learn that ability to communicate with people, the ability to cooperate and collaborate and create with other people, absolutely. All of that is part of what we're talking about. A model, marriage, the original collaboration, the original connection. So wait a sec, what's that got to do with my business? Well, it's very simple and that is that it takes a man and a woman to produce the most amazing act of creativity that any human being can do. Fine, but what happens if my uh, partner or the person I'm trying to do a business deal with is a man as well? Like, what does that say about us? Oh, it's very simple. It means that you've got to understand the biblical message. It means that we start off, and I say, "I've, I've asked you to meet with me today because I have an idea whereby a piece of property you own and a piece of property that is owned by some clients of mine, if we were able to put them together, its value wouldn't be double what it should be. It would be like triple or more. Now, in that, during that part of the interaction, do you see that I'm the man and he's the woman? I'm planting the seed, and at that moment, I keep quiet. I've said my piece, and now he says. Well, there are a few things you need to know. The ownership structure of the property you've been looking at isn't as simple as you think. It's made up of this partnership and this arrangement and that entity. However, there could possibly be ways of how, now, who's the man and who's the woman? Well, he's the man, I'm the woman. He's planting ideas with me. That's, by the way, why we call the conception of a baby a conception, right? Right? And when we think of a business idea, I conceive of an idea because we understand it's exactly the same. And so learning how to listen is being able to receive. This is very stimulating for a man to be with a woman who really wants to receive. That's incredibly powerful. Well, in business it's exactly the same. And and so if I want something to happen in a relationship, I have to learn how to listen. That's why the good Lord gave us two ears and only one mouth. You must do twice as much listening as talking. So, and it's not, to, I mustn't have a look on my face that says, I can't wait for you to shut up so I can talk some more. <laughs> have you ever been with people like that? You're talking, you're trying to explain something really important, and you know the person is figuring out what he's going to say next. He hasn't had a w- You don't want to do that. That's not stimulating. That's irritating. (laughs) And the role of money is that it proves you've served another one of God's children. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. It was the start of the children of Israel. They leave Egypt with with money because that's an essential part of everything. And and I, I have to Tell you that uh, that I, I get so sad sometimes when I arrive at a church for the first time to, to start teaching the program, and I see stress on the pastor's face. I look one look at the pastor's wife, and I see a woman who can't pay the family bills. And I look at the church building, deferred maintenance, light bulbs out, needs paint, roof could do some work.
0: There's no money there,
1: and tragic associate in their minds poverty with piety. Tragically, they think the poverty proves how non-greedy they are. Because rich people are greedy, right? Well, we are. We're greedy to serve other people. We are greedy to do God's work. That's what we're greedy for. And, um, and nothing gives me greater pleasure. Honestly, I, I get such a kick when we, we, we do programs, we Seminars, we do the, uh, the, the the working through the books, and then I come back eighteen months later, and there's new cars in the in the parking lot, and the building is in good shape, and everyone seems to be much more stress-free. and And the best part of it is that the church has grown dramatically, many many more people. Why? Well, why would you want to associate with a whole big group of broke people? tell you what it says, it means that there are people who don't know how to serve God's other children. Because that's what money is. And so we've got to avoid the propaganda. We've got to avoid the way movies and politics, you know what politicians love saying? Every, the rich people must pay their fair share. There's only two problems with that statement. Sounds good. I mean, yeah, yeah, I want the rich to pay their fair share. Them, not me two things wrong with that, and that is rich isn't defined and fair isn't defined. What it boils down to is that politician wants the power to take any amount from anybody because he's going to tell you who's rich and he's going to tell you what's fair. It's, It's not right. It's simply not right. And so we begin to buy into this idea rich is proof that you're not a good person. And, and let me tell you something. I, I was speaking about uh, self-defense. If, um, if one of the hardest things, if you're training people to fight, whether it's in sport or whether it's for military purposes, do you know what the hardest thing is? To overcome people's natural reluctance to hurt other people. That's the hardest thing. And what happens is that uh, and anybody who's had experience in, in martial arts will tell you that without training, if you are told to punch somebody's nose, you actually start slowing down your fist about nine inches before you reach his nose because you're so reluctant to actually do this. And so they start off training you saying, you mustn't aim for his nose. You must aim for the back of his skull. You must go right through his face because that way you won't start slowing your fist down until it's already done the damage. I mean, I'm sorry to be talking about this kind of stuff. But, but I'm, I'm trying to explain that if you believe in your heart that making money is greedy and not right and somehow hurting other people and you're taking things away from them, then you are not going to put your effort into it. You just won't. And so when people believe that money is physical, do you see the results of that? If money is physical, then if I have it, it must be that you don't. And therefore, every dollar I have means one of you is missing a dollar. How terrible is that? Obviously, you don't want to make money because that's not making money. It's taking money. Who wants to take money? What a terrible idea. And here we wrap up with a story... Of great-grandfather Lappin. Great-grandfather Lappin, we're going to make this quick. I'm not going to uh, share all his frustrations. I'm not going to share the bad days. We're just going to make this quick and simple. Grandpa Lappin was a peddler, okay? And uh, he'd drive his pickup truck into a small town. <coughs> Pardon me. And uh, he'd knock on the door. lady comes to the door and he says, hey, got anything you don't need? She says, I don't think so. He says, think hard. She says, well, there's uh, the old table we're getting rid of. He says, what are you doing with it? She says, we're going to put it out in the alley. The city is going to come pick it up on Tuesday. Grandpa Lappin says, for free? And she says, when did the city ever do anything for free? (laughs) They're charging $5 to pick up the table. Grandpa Lappin says, I've got an idea. Help me put it on my pickup truck, and I'll give you $5. Now, here is the difficult question of the evening. If you get this right, you can go home early.
0: <laughs> my question
1: is, how much better off is this family because Grandpa had knocked on their door? Did you hear $10? University professors always say 5 but of course it's ten. She doesn't have to pay the five to the city, so she's five off now, and she gets Grandpa Lappin's five. Five and five is ten. That's straightforward, right? Grandpa Lappin stops at the hardware store, picks up a nail to tighten a wobbly leg, picks up some paint to paint out a scratch on the table, knocks on the neck house. Lady opens. She's, uh, Grandpa Lappin says, "'Anybody here need a table?' She says, well, I don't, but my daughter is getting married next week. They may need a table. How She calls The girl comes around. Yes, Mom. Well, what do you want? And uh, she says, well, this man here has got a table to sell. And uh, Grandpa Lappin says to her, so you're getting married. I hear congratulations. What were you and your husband planning to do for a dining room table? She said, well, we're going to go to Ethan Allen's furniture showrooms. We're going to get a dining room table. Grandpa Lappin says, Now, how much were you planning on paying? She says, $20. Grandpa Lappin says, look, I've got a, a table on my pickup truck. You can have it for 10 Now, mind you, it had a wobbly leg I nailed. It had scratched the top. I painted it out. But you can have it for 10 She says, let's take a look at it. She looks at it. She says, you know what? This would be just fine as a starter table. They help Grandpa Lappin carry it off, take it inside, and uh, they give Grandpa Lappin $10. How much better off is this family now because Grandpa Lappin and Ten, right? Because they were going to spend 20 and now they're going to have to spend $10. do not worry about Ethan Allen. Ethan Allen hasn't been hurt. The asset value of the inventory hasn't changed. So there's been no change there. But there has been a change with family number two. They're $10 up. There's been a change with family number one. They're $10 up. So what is the aggregate improvement to the village so far from Grandpa Lappin's activities? You forgot about the hardware store. There's a dollar in his till that Grandpa Lappin paid. So, just so far, the village is better off by $21. And here's the last question. You answer this, I'll really let you go. How much is there in Grandpa Lappin's pocket? What's his profit? Somebody said it? Four is right. And it's easy to do, you just work it backwards. Second family gave him ten. He gave one to the hardware store. That's nine. How much did he give to the first family? Five. Nine minus five. That leaves four. If you just change the order of the arithmetic, you get the right answer. You get the right answer the other way as well. This is just easier. So, now you might say to yourself, rabbinic smoke and mirrors. When we get home, we'll figure out how he did this. (laughs) Not true. It's absolutely, absolutely so. Because the thing about spiritual is. doesn't need any hardware. And so, you don't believe me, I'll tell you about the first company that for many years was the only company that made money on the internet from day one. And it's not Amazon. Amazon took massive losses. What's the company that made money from day one called? eBay! And so I investigated, and I was friendly with some of the people at eBay, I asked them how many transactions are going on on eBay at any given instant. The answer is between 70 and 100,000. Right now. Well, eBay is nothing other. Here's the best definition of eBay you're going to hear all day. eBay is nothing more than 70,000 grandpa lapins all working at the same time. (laughs) They're buying things from some people, they're selling things to other people, And guess what? There's a little arbitrage there in eBay's pocket as well. And everybody who does business with eBay is richer at the end of it. Because they got something at a better price than they could have got elsewhere, otherwise they would have gone elsewhere. And if you buy or you sell, you're better off. That is making money. And so once you're in a country that started going atheist, that started abandoning the idea of a spiritual reality, money now is no longer spiritual because nobody can even relate to the idea of spiritual. Therefore, they believe money is physical. If money is physical, what do you know? It can only be in one place at a time. You got it. You took it from me. Therefore, people who have more money than me are evil. It's absolutely inevitable. If you have the wrong idea, physical and spiritual, if you abandon a physical perspective on reality, you have to be a socialist. If you are able to be cured and you realize, wait a sec, he's proven to me that money is spiritual, that changes everything. Now, if I make money, I'm a good person because I didn't point a gun at you. You bought my book because I'm helping you had me roof your house because I did a good job at the right price. And I ate in your restaurant because I love that. I want you to do well. This is this amazing godly network of economic interconnectivity which was part of I love, you. I love you because you're putting time and effort and energy. You're investing your assets in trying to become more effective at doing exactly what God planned for us to do. Does God want you to be rich? I can't say that. He hasn't told me. But I can tell you that he wants each and every one of us to be obsessive. Listen to me carefully. Each and every one of us to be obsessively preoccupied. With the needs and desires of our brothers and sisters. And if you do that, don't be surprised if the result is God's great blessing of financial abundance. That's as far as we can go. I'm really sorry. I'd love to go on until the morning, but um, <laughs> reality interrupts. God bless you all. I, I want to hear from you. Well, thank you very much indeed, my wonderful podcast audience. I cherish each and every one of you, and uh, I mean that because uh, every time I see there have been another 50 downloads or another 100 downloads, I say thank God for that, and I very much appreciate those of you who find value in these podcasts. So again, um, I'd like to know from you whether this one worked or not. Uh, Do you – Would you rather I don't do this again, or if there are occasions when there is a speech I think you will find useful uh, that I pass it on to you, in spite of the fact that the audio quality is lower? Um, As many of you already know, I I do 30 or 40 speeches a year in uh, different uh, venues, many of them in churches, many of them for business organizations around the country every year. And of those, there are always a number of them that are of general interest and sufficient importance that I, I have a strong urge to, to share it with you on the podcast. But if, uh, if most of you feel that the, 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 uh, the drop in quality just isn't worth it, let me know, and uh, I just won't do that again. So thanks so much for being with me. The website, as you know, is rabbidaniellappin.com. RabbiDanielLappin.com, and uh, hit the Contact Us tab, and that way you'll be able to uh, uh, join in, and um, I'll be able to hear from you, and I'll, I'll read your email. Also, at the same website, go over to the store and peruse the store, because when you purchase something, two good things happen. Number one is you obtain a resource that thousands and thousands of other people all around the country and indeed all around the world uh, have found useful and life-enhancing. And the second thing is that uh, I get compensated and uh, I get encouraged and incentivized to continue doing what I do. So I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and uh, for this week, my dear friends, all that remains is for me to wish you a week of good health, and prosperity. God bless you.
0: The Blaze on Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin.